0: This is the Koinos Community Church Podcast. Subscribe so that you can join us regularly as we look to find ways to close the gap between who we are and who God longs for us to be. So if you want to follow Eli's lead, he, ha- he knows exactly where he wants to sit All right, so first I have to ask if anybody has read this story before. Okay, so you're not going to give away any spoilers, right? Okay, no spoilers. All right. Um, Have you ever read this? Okay. (laughs) All right, so just a little rule, right? When you read a story um, or someone reads a story to you that you've already read, you're not going to give any spoilers, right? So you're going to pretend you read it for the first time, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this story is called We Don't Eat Our Classmates. I thought it would be a good story uh, since we're getting ready for school here in a little bit, right? You excited to go back to school? <laughs> well, it's going to give us some lessons, right, for what not to do when we go to school. In, in a few, right, to not eat your classmates, right, exactly. Okay, so this story, uh, Grown Ups, this is an amazing story. If you can pick up the, the book, the pictures um, are really, really funny. So you're probably not going to be able to see them from back, back there. But um, if you're able to pick up a copy of the book, uh, you can enjoy it just like a kid. Because we're all just really big kids, right? Okay, so Penelope Rex. Penelope Rex was nervous. It's not every day a little T-Rex starts school. This is a little tricky, sorry. What are my classmates going to be like? Will they be nice? How many teeth will they have? This was very important. Penelope's mom bought her a new backpack with ponies on it. Ponies were Penelope's favorite because ponies are delicious. (laughs) Penelope's dad packed her a lunch of 300 tuna sandwiches and one apple juice. (laughs) I know, I was thinking the same thing. Finally, the big day came, and Penelope Rex was very surprised to find out that all of her classmates were children children so she ate them because children are delicious Penelope Rex said Mrs. Noodleman we don't eat our classmates please spit them out at once so she did it was not the best way to start school Still, Penelope was determined to have a good first day. She tried hard to make friends at recess. She finger-painted some of her best work. She even saved Griffin Emery a seat at lunch. You can sit here. She's pointing to her plate, in case you can't see Penelope started to notice everyone was making friends except for her. It was lonely. When she got home, her dad asked her about the first day of school. I didn't make any friends, Penelope cried. None of the children wanted to play with me. Penelope Rex, her father said. Did you eat your classmates? Well, maybe sort of just a little bit. Sometimes it's hard to make friends, said her dad, especially if you eat them. You see, Penelope, children are just the same as us on the inside, just tastier. That gave Penelope a lot to think about. The next day, Penelope tried really hard, but poor Penelope, she could not stop herself from eating her classmates. Mrs. Noodleman, Penelope ate William Amato again. And they were all afraid of her. Except Walter. Walter was a goldfish. So Penelope tried to make friends with him. Will you be my friend? Chomp. cried Penelope, he's eating my finger, ah. Once Penelope found out what it was like to be someone's snack, she lost her appetite for children. She stopped eating her classmates, even when Cece Woodman, Woodman spilled barbecue sauce all over herself, and soon Penelope made friends. Found you. Want a brownie? I helped make them. Now, even when children look especially delicious, she she peeks at Walter and remembers what it's like when someone tries to eat you. And Walter, the goldfish, stares right back at her and licks his lips. Do you know the last line?
1: Because dinosaurs are delicious.
0: Okay, so this is a silly story, right? Does anything surprise you about this story? Did anything surprising happen? You've already read it. But the first time you read it, did anything surprise you? Okay, let's ask a different question. I like to ask my students um, do any of the characters do anything surprising? What do you think? Uh, Who does something surprising? Penelope. What does Penelope do that's surprising? Uh, Eats the children. But she's a dinosaur, right? Wouldn't you kind of expect her to eat the children? I don't know.
1: Goldfish eating
0: Penelope. Yes, the goldfish eating Penelope, right? Or biting her, right? Why? That's surprising because she's a goldfish, right? Um, does anyone is anyone surprised I'm gonna come back to that. Is anyone surprised by the teacher? Are you surprised by the teacher, Eli? What Ca- surprises you that she's that
1: she's not that mad?
0: She just says, now, Penelope, we don't eat the other classmates, right? Um, So what does does Penelope learn, Zoe? Not to eat her classmates. Yeah, she learns something called empathy, right? What is it like when someone else does something to you that you don't want them to do, right? So if she wants to make friends, she has to treat others like she would want to be treated, right? And not eat them in this case, right? I think the teacher is also surprising, Eli, because um, like you said, she didn't really, she just wasn't really too obsessed. She just said, hey, don't do that, right? And I think about how Jesus is with us, how God is with us, right? Sometimes we keep making mistakes over and over again, um, but sometimes God just gently tells us, "No, oh, that's, you know, that's not quite right, right? And we keep trying and God keeps loving us, right, until we get it right. All right. Thank you, guys. Um, Alyssa Lana is in the back if you'd like to hang out with her. She has a craft, I believe, and some things for you to do back there. Somewhere back there.
1: Well done, Emily. Am I on? Yeah. Good work, good work. So, hello again. Um, We were here last week. Obviously, this is Emily. Let's give her a round of applause, bringing out the teacher skills, reading stories, wonderful stuff.
0: I didn't really practice with the mic and the- That's
1: fine, it's challenging. Um, And I am Dave. We were here last week, we're back. So, and you're back, so. Wow, that's good. (laughs) We weren't sure if that was gonna happen. Uh, So, yeah, but, uh, I'm just gonna dive in and get started. So last week, I think many of you were here, we talked about stories, Uh, we talked about God's story, so we're not going to rehash the entire thing, you can go listen to the podcast if you want to. I've been told I talk very loud, so I apologize for that. Uh, But the big story is the one, like the big story is the one that we say God is telling throughout scripture. And that big story is the story that if we wanted to, we could summarize it in four kind of points creation in the beginning God creates humanity rebels the fall sin brokenness all that uh from that God works to redeem uh bring redemption ultimately through Jesus and then looking ahead one day there will be the full restoration where God um, removes all suffering and evil and, and and finishes the story I guess you could say we also mentioned last week that this big story has a place for every other story one Uh, line that I like to use and I come back to frequently is that all truth is God's truth. So wherever we find truth, whether in a song, children's book, whatever it may be, that truth is not something to be scared of, but it can be something that points us to to God. So this week, we're going to kind of nerd out a little bit because we both like to read books and we read very different books. So we're going to talk about some of our favorite stories. And uh, in that, we're going to look at these three questions, which we mentioned last week. Uh, What do these stories tell us about ourselves? What do they tell us about other people? And what do they tell us about the world? So we're not going to necessarily answer every one of those three questions for every story because we we'll would be here for a while and I'm not paying Alana enough, I'm not paying her anything, to uh, be back there with the kids that long. So, uh, but we're going to talk about different books. And we really, we really want to imagine that um, we're just kind of sitting in our living room chatting about uh, the books we're reading, conversations we have anyway, just you all get to be a part of that. So, uh, before we get into that, though, I just want to bring in two scriptures to kind of center us and as a jumping-off point. The first one comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. This is Paul writing, and he writes, When you come, you being presumably Timothy, uh, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. He wants his coat back. Can't blame him for that. And my scrolls, especially the parchments. So, Paul was someone who liked to read. And I like to imagine Paul sitting with his friends Um, riffing on the latest scroll or parchment idea he found in that book. He wants his books, basically. Uh, The Roman orator Cicero once said that a room without books is like a body without a soul. And I think Paul would have agreed. Uh, One text that Paul may have read frequently or known well, uh, this is the other scripture I want to share, is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. And this is probably familiar to you if you like uh, classic rock music. But I'm going to go ahead and read it. For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. So that's obviously very poetic. uh, And I think this scripture demonstrates a lot of the emotions and experiences that we all, I mean, there's a time for them all. We go through these things in our lives. But at the same time, on another level, I think these are emotions and experiences and things that happen that can be felt through entering... The stories that we love. So, with that said, without further ado, Emily, what's a book that you've been reading recently?
0: I have that song in my head now. By the way, you're welcome. Um, I was like, "What is he talking about?" Oh yeah, and now I have it. So, I spend a lot of time in July reading books that I think my students would like. So, I read a lot of young adult and middle grade. Um, can you can go to the next slide. So you can see a couple of them there, the smaller ones. I'm not going to talk about those today, but I try to read a lot of things again that I think my, my students would appeal, would appeal to them. But I do read some things for myself. So this one in the middle is the one I'm going to talk about. Uh, for those of you who do not know John Green, he is the author of The Fault in Our Stars. So if you've seen the, the movie or read the, the YA book, um, it is one and the same. And he has a brother named Hank Green who actually does, like, a SciShow YouTube channel. And he, they also do podcasts together. So this book uh, started out as a podcast. You can go to the next slide there then, too. Um, my slides are a little confusing. But <laughs> um, there's a picture of John Green and what his kind of podcast looks like. And then uh, it's the same title. So it's called The Anthropocene Reviewed. And the subtitle is Essays on a Human-Centered Planet. This is a very spiritual book for me to read because it's basically like an ode to life, to earth, to humanity. Again, like I said, he started out this book as a podcast and he talks about the Anthropocene, which is the current geological age. That was a new word for me. And he gives these personal reviews. So he brings himself into these reviews of just things on earth and... He uses stories as part of them to teach and evaluate and reflect. And then he actually gives them like a star rating at the end, one through five. So he reviews Canada Geese and Diet Dr. Pepper and air conditioning and CNN and Monopoly and Super Mario Kart and the Notes app. So it's a super fun book, um, but it's also really deep. So I just wanted to share one of my favorites. The, this one is uh, Sunsets. So how many of you have ever tried to post a picture of a sunset? on social media, everybody, right, right, and I do it too, I'm guilty, but you know it never, like, actually gives the sunset justice, like, why do we do it, right, like, Dave always makes fun of people who post, like, fireworks, like, you know, it never looks the same, like, just go, you got to experience it, right, um, and to me, that's, that's kind of how God is, right, like, God is inexplicable, we try to explain God, but it you know, it falls short. You just have to experience God. Sunsets are inexplicable and yet they're perfect, right? As long as you're there and, and seeing that. So just one little quote from his essay on sunsets. He says, like a God, the sun has fearsome and wondrous power. And like a God, the sun is difficult or even dangerous to look at directly. And then he goes goes on to say, I don't just need the light of that star to survive. I am in many ways a product of its light, which is basically how I feel about God. So, Dave, tell us about a book that you are reading or have read recently.
1: No problem. <laughs> yeah, I never get the videos of the fireworks, though. Like, are you going to go back and watch it again? I don't know. But anyway, um, it's always sort of a different story. So, but we all do it. It's okay. We all do it. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, yeah, it. No judgment from here. Yeah, no judgment. So this summer, um, I think if you know me a little bit, you know that I'm kind of a fantasy nerd. I like to read fantasy novels. And this summer, I've been rereading, because any good book worth reading once is worth reading twice, Um, Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn series. If you don't know who that is, it's okay. But if you do, welcome to being a nerd like me. But I like to read – so a lot of the fantasy novels nowadays, at least the ones that I'm aware of, tend to be like a thousand pages long, really fat, hundreds of characters, like really a lot. So in between each of those thick books, I like to read something different, almost as like a palate cleanser, and I've been reading um, Ursula K. Le Guin's series, The Wizard of Earthsea. And if you're f- not, well, whether you're familiar or not, but back in like the 60s and 70s would kind of be the classic era of fantasy. This is your J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, um, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, um, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline L'Engle, and in that group sometimes put is Ursula K. Le Guin, but... I had never read her books before, so I thought now is a good time as any to dive in. And I really appreciate these books because, again, they're much shorter 120, 150 pages, uh, and they're very character driven. There's maybe two or three characters in each of the books who you really get to know in a deep way. So, in the third book, The Farthest Shore, the one I want to just talk briefly about this morning, uh, there's Ged, G E D who in the first book is a young wizard who goes off to, like, wizard school. Makes me think that Harry Potter stole the idea um, from this book, but that's all other story. Uh, and then in the third book, so in the first book he's a young wizard just starting out, uh, kind of like Harry Potter. In the third book he has become the wise old sage, the Dumbledore character, I guess you could say. And then in the third book he's joined by a prince in exile named Arin or Aaron. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. But these two characters go on a quest to figure out why magic is disappearing from their world. And it's not just magic that's disappearing. People are essentially forgetting what it's like to be human. There's one scene where they meet these people who are kind of uh, practicing a sort of ritual dance or a ritual song, something that's been a tradition in their culture. But then everybody just like forgets this this ritualistic song uh, because they're forgetting what it's like to be human. And in the end, Ged and Aaron discover there's this evil wizard who is trying to cheat death. And it's kind of opened this portal between the world of the living and the world of the dead. And that's caused all the problems. But what they talk about, what Ged talks about, what Ursula K. Le Guin talks about, author, character, however you want to put it, uh, is that it's our knowledge of death, the fact that we know we're going to die someday, is one of the things that uniquely makes us human. Like I think about my dog Johnny. Like he's sitting on the couch right now sleeping. He doesn't reflect on his own mortality like we all at some point do. Like he doesn't think, oh my gosh, someday I'm going to die. What have I not experienced? Like that's just... That's unique to humans, right? And Ged has this line where he talks about this. He writes, or he says, uh, You will die. You will not live forever. Nor will any man nor anything. Nothing is immortal. But only to us is given to know that we must die. And that is a great gift, the gift of selfhood. For we have only what we know we must lose, what we are willing to lose. And as I think about one of those questions that we talked to, asked about, what does this story say about us? It says that we're going to die. Yet, as Christians, our faith is about overcoming death. And I think there's a key difference here between what is going on in the story and what our faith is. There's a difference between overcoming death and avoiding death. Because as Christians, we believe that God became human, and in becoming human, God experienced everything humans experience, including death. So our hope as Christians is not avoiding death, putting it off, hiding from it forever, Our hope as Christians is that we are going to die. That reality is real. We can lament that when it happens. We can mourn those who die who go before us. But our hope is that we have on the other side of that resurrection and new life. So, Emily, what's one of your favorite books of all time?
0: Well, uh, Flowers for Algernon. (laughs) Has anyone ever read Flowers for Algernon? Are you familiar with the story or the old movie Charlie. Uh, I know when I was in school, I think they had us read kind of like an excerpt from the book. It actually used to be, it started as a story. When Daniel Keyes wrote it, it was a short story, and then he turned it into a novel. There was an old movie named Char called Charlie, based on Flowers for Algernon, the book, or the story. I guess uh, the movie came after the book, uh, from the 1960s. And more recently, but I guess not that recent anymore, There was a made-for-TV movie just called Flowers for Algernon. And you can see that in the bottom right corner. The star is Matthew Modine, who some of you may know from Stranger Things. Yeah, Uh, He's a really good actor. But anyway, so I had a personal connection with the story. It just struck me the first time I I read it or was exposed to it as as a child. And then I must have read it on my own after that. I actually had the opportunity to... There's a play. I think there's actually a musical, but it was kind of a dud. But I got to direct the play when I taught high school, um, my first teaching job. So that was really awesome. And I think... I'll tell you the story in a second for those of you who don't know it, uh, most of you. was a connection for me as a teacher. So one of the main characters is a teacher, and Charlie is learning from the, the teacher. And so there's this, this connection for me in that way. Obviously, when I read it, I wasn't a teacher, but I clearly became one. So uh, you can go to the next slide. I'm going to give a little summary. Basically, Charlie undergoes this experiment that has only been done so far with mice, and hence Algernon. Algernon is the mouse. And the experiment is to increase his IQ. So his IQ is in the low 80s. And then just as high as it might go, they're not really sure. But once Charlie becomes smart, he starts to see that things are not really all they're cracked up to be, right? He realizes um, also that Algernon is starting to regress and going back to his original um, intelligence level. And Charlie's just an amazing character, an amazing person, because he's able to kind of accept that this is happening. He's able to cultivate uh, a true relationship in the short time that he has um, before he regresses. And um, there's just a lot to love and learn from Charlie. So some of the the lessons, and you can go to the next slide whenever. Uh, The first one for me is just love and acceptance. I think we're made to be in relationship with other people. We're made to be loved and to love. And that's all really that Charlie wants. He wants friends. He wants people to be proud of him. So where do we look for this? love and acceptance? Who truly understands us? Do we ever find anyone who truly does? And so I think in this story, um, Miss Kinnian, Charlie's teacher, and Algernon the mouse reflect Jesus back to me. Uh, Miss Kinnian is, again, the teacher. She longs for those same things. Like she just wants to be loved. She wants to have a friendship. And she is one of the few people that, or maybe the only person who really accepts Charlie for who he is, No matter what his intelligence level is, she sees him for his heart, for who he is. Algernon also understands Charlie. And I think uh, this is neat because I think that God gives us animals. He gives us creation to care for and to care for us. So I love that, that connection as well. I think, secondly, we're made in God's image, right? In the story, Charlie's seen as this mistake that needs to be fixed, right? He's not smart, and so they need to make him smarter. Um, they need to make him this ideal, this normal, right? He's like this burden. But um, he was made in God's image, right, from from the beginning. He was always kind, he was always loving, and he was always Charlie. Um, just a little quote, this is a quote from the this, the movie. The mind, that Charlie says this, when he becomes smart and he kind of understands everything, he says, the mind without the heart isn't worth a damn. It's a question of values. We are, meaning like the supposedly smart people, are the morons. We're the ones that don't get it, right? And then the last thing is perspective. Charlie says, I was never normal. I'll still be different. I don't know which is worse, to not know what you are and be happy or to become what you always wanted to be and feel like you're alone. So God created us, again, for who we are, who we are right? Um, Jesus' love is for everyone. He accepts us how we are. How many times do we try to, like, change ourselves or try to change other people because they think we think they should be a certain way, right? And then just to, to end up, uh, Charlie, I think, reflects Jesus as well because he is the one that, that learns to fully accept and to fully love. And if you don't know what I mean, you have to watch the movie or read the book. Find out. So that brings me to your favorite story, Dave, which I think has some connections with Powers for Algernon, too. No spoilers.
1: All right, yes. So I want to talk about uh, a book called A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Uh, So I first read this book when I was in college, so over 20 years ago now, and it immediately became my favorite, one of my favorites of all time. Uh, In the story, it's about a boy named Owen Meany who uh, is abnormally, like, as he grows up into adulthood, he remains child-sized. He has a screeching voice. I think Irving writes, like, all of his lines in all caps to kind of just show that the way he talks is very screeching. So he grows up, and it's the story of his life. And it's told by Owen's childhood friend. uh, is telling the story from many years later. So we know from the beginning of the story that Owen dies in the end. And as we read through it, Um, And there's the line up there on the screen, I think this is from near the beginning, where he talks about uh, how I am a Christian because of Owen Meany. There's a theological uh, deep meaning, deep peace in this book. And Irving is, I would say, a master storyteller. And as I was preparing this, I always think whenever I think about this book, I know he's written like a bunch of other books. This is the only one I've read, which is weird if I consider it one of my favorite books. But I always, I don't know, I just never got around to reading any of the other ones. Maybe they're not, I don't know, maybe they're not as good. But anyway... Maybe I should read them and find out. But as I when I first read this book, one of the questions that it forced me to ask is what does it mean to consider something Christian entertainment? And what I mean by that is that I was in college, I was away from home for the first time, I was at a point in my life where the faith that my parents had taught me in church, is it going to be something that's mine? Am I going to make it my own? Am I going to want to something else? And as a young Christian in college, there was a, a I don't know if pressure is the right word, but being told to listen to Christian music and and read Christian books, using Christian as like an adjective for sanctified and approved entertainment. And I remember having read some of these uh, books that were written intentionally as Christian books that you would find in a Christian bookstore. And in retrospect, these books always came across as a sort of propaganda. And what I mean by that is that it was clear in reading them that the authors were more concerned with like preaching at you than telling you a good story. And what I saw in Irving and other writers is that their goal was to tell the good story first. And in that, and I think this is what makes a good story a good story, you can read it and you can be challenged, you can find things to think about, but the story always comes first. So like we're sitting up here talking about these lessons we find in stories, but I think it's worth saying that like when we sit and read books at home, We're not sitting there with, like, a highlighter and a pen and a notebook and, like... Well,
0: sometimes you are.
1: (laughs) Only when I'm reading a book that's intentionally written. is not a novel. Not a novel. Um, It's okay to just, like... Like, we read these books for escape, for entertainment. It's okay to just read a book and enjoy it and to get away from the real world for a few minutes and let your imagination run. Like, that's fine. Uh, It's the deeper things that just kind of happen when you're immersed in those stories. And I think... A good story with well-developed characters and real feeling uh, and real feeling people that you can relate to. We see ourselves in them, and we do find ourselves learning things. But the story comes first. So the connection then to flowers for Algernon. I alluded to that a minute ago. Like when I look at a prayer for Owen Meany, and I definitely recommend reading this one. It's a great book. Um, what does it tell us about other people? And it's very similar. Everyone matters. Even those who we may look at, someone like Owen, someone like Charlie and Flowers for Algernon, people that we may look at and and consider, we define, oh, well, they're not not normal. There's something maybe wrong with them or however we think. And these books remind us that, first of all, none of us are normal. And second of all, we all matter because we're all created in God's image. Back to you.
0: So I – I love that connection to the flowers around um, I want to jump back to what you said about just enjoying a story for uh, the mere enjoyment. I think stories, of course, have a, this funny way of changing us, right? Even if we didn't intend for it, even if we weren't looking for a message or a meaning, um, we go into the story to be entertained, and sometimes God speaks to us through that. So I'm going to talk about The Lion King, uh, this is a favorite childhood story, and I use these images. I know Dan talked about nostalgia and your personal stories and ways that, that stories affect you. And so not only does I think, do I think this story has a, a great message, but I think it also is nostalgic for me, right? Um, how many, anyone grew up in the 90s? It was, like, the best time to be a kid, right? You had these, like, you didn't have social media, you have to worry about all that kind of stuff. I was 11 when The Lion King came out, and I just remember playing with my younger cousins. Like, it kept me, you know, I was a kid. Like, I was still a kid. I wasn't, like, worried about grown-up stuff. We had these little figurines. They were, like, the best, and they they had, like, bendable legs, and we would just play for hours. We would recreate the movie. And then, of course, you know, we had the Sega Genesis. uh, I don't think Sid was
1: going to make that jump.
0: (laughs) This is a very, (laughs) very challenging part of the video game. He's going to fall. I think this is probably the most challenging um, part. But anyway, I wasn't allowed to have video games at my mom's house, so I had to play it when I was at my dad's house. But anyway. um, Okay. So you can go to the next slide. (laughs) So I have a personal connection, obviously, with The Lion King. The Lion King came out in 1994, the movie. And then the Broadway musical... Debuted in uh, 1997. We just went to go see it with our kids. It's been on Broadway since then, which I think is amazing. If you've never seen it, it's really interesting. They have these costumes, but the masks are like on top of their heads rather than covering their heads. Um, Super, super interesting and just amazing. And then, of course, we had the refresh in in 2019, which personally I thought was just as, as good. So we talked about this a little bit last week as well, that uh, even though you know, you probably all know the story of The Lion King, I hope, I know it, but I could watch it again. I could go see the Broadway musical every day. (laughs) You know what I mean? It never gets old. So that's, and Dave mentioned this too, like good stories we keep coming back to, right? So just in case you don't know, Simba wants to become king. But his Uncle Scar wants it so badly himself to become king that he's willing to kill Mufasa, the king, and frame Simba. So Simba leaves because he's ashamed, and it's not until he recognizes his duty, helped by Nala, who is obviously the real heroine of the story, that he returns and saves the kingdom. So of course the pivotal scene is when Simba is trying to decide whether he wants to go back to the Pride Lands, and he, Rafiki takes him and says, look in this pool of water. And he's, Rafiki says, he's alive. Mufasa is alive. I'll show him to you. And Simba looks in the pool of water, and he says, that's not my father. That's just my reflection. Rafiki says, you see, he lives in you. And then Mufasa speaks. You have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. You are more than what you have become. How can I go back? Simba says, I'm not who I used to be, and Mufasa reminds him that you are my son and the run, one true king. So it used to frustrate me, and you can go to the next slide whenever, too. It used to frustrate me so much that Simba believed Scar's lies, right? He couldn't see his worth, he couldn't see his duty, his responsibility, that they needed him, right? But isn't that how we are as humans, right? We're self-centered, and at the same time, we're self-loathing. We think we're the cause of everything, good or bad, Right? But it's not till we recognize who we are, that our identity is as children of God, that we can move forward in faith to be who we were meant to be. And these lyrics are from a song that's not in the original movie, but it's in it's in the musical. I would encourage you to look it up on Spotify or whatever. It's uh, He Lives in You reprised. Reprise is the best, okay? Uh, just... A note there if you're looking it up. So the the melody melody is very captivating, but I really love these lyrics. There's no mountain too great. Hear these words and have faith. He lives in you. He lives in me. He watches over everything we see into the water, into the truth, into your reflection, in your reflection. He lives in you. So Jesus is alive. Amen.
1: Wow. Nice. All right. It's my turn to move towards the end. So, um, I was going to talk about, in more detail, The Wire, which is one of the greatest TV shows ever made. 20th anniversary of it being released. I don't know if anyone's ever seen it. It's on HBO. Um, I've watched it. I'm watching it the third time now, because it's, it's a show that you get something from every single time you watch it. And I was going to talk about it, because it's gritty, and it's, I've heard people who watch it say it's like realistic, because it's cynical, and, and like nothing ever changes. or gets better. It's a brilliant piece of storytelling. Um, caveat, obviously there's a lot of violence in language, so if that's not your cup of tea, then don't watch it, or at least don't yell at me, I'm warning you. But, um, as I thought about talking about, it, that, about that in more detail, I thought it made more sense to maybe step back and talk about stories in general, and ask another one of those big questions, which we, I guess we've kind of already, asked, well, the same question. What do these stories tell us about the world? And if we wanted to boil it down, which I do want to boil it down, I guess that's why I brought it up, is that there's really only two different kinds of stories, I might want to argue. And that is tragedy and comedy. So think back to your high school literature class, depending, you know, that may be longer for some of us than others, but think back to Shakespeare. We probably all read Shakespeare, at least learned about Shakespeare in high school. And Shakespeare, he had tragedies. That's the, those are the ones where everybody dies in the end. Um, don't have a happy ending, Hamlet, King Lear, Macbeth, other ones, Romeo and Juliet, of course. And then there were comedies. Comedies do have a happy ending. Um, Much Ado About Nothing, uh, love's Labor's Loss, Miss night's Dream. So we think of comedy as like, ha ha, that's funny. But like any story that has a happy ending is technically, in this definition, a comedy. And the question then is, is which of these two types of stories, comedy or tragedy, reflects the real world? And I imagine I'm not the only one of us that when I go throughout my days and I look at the world around me, um, it seems like the world is, is hopeless. Is, it's easy to become cynical. There's so many – you just watch the news and you see that injustice runs rampant, that the people in charge, whoever they may be, don't seem to be able to fix anything. They're actually corrupt. They probably don't want to fix anything, right? Um, And you look at the world and you're just wondering, like, what can I – what can any of us do to make the world better? And we see some stories that reflect this realism. Like that's one of the things we see in a show like The Wire. You have a couple of characters, politicians, police officers – who from time to time do want to fix what's going on in the city of Baltimore where it takes place, but they inevitably run up against a system that's just not set up to be be fixed. And they eventually lose or give up or, or whatever. And you can probably think of other modern stories, modern tragedies, things that appear to us to be realistic because they're not necessarily hopeful. And what do stories like this tell us about the world? They tell us that the world is a broken place, that sin... Brokenness affects us as individuals. It affects us on the level of systems. it's, It's many faceted and it's not getting better. I would say stories like this illustrate sin very well, but they don't tell us much about redemption. And maybe I'm just a hopeful person, although we're in church, so hopefully I'm not the only one. But what if these are the stories, again, I hear these stories described sometimes as realistic, but what if they're not actually realistic? What if these stories aren't actually reflective of the real world? What if comedy is actually the story of the cosmos we live in? What if happy endings are the realistic stories? Because something I would say deep inside of us... And again, I hope I'm not the only one. Something deep inside of us is drawn to stories of hope. Drawn to stories of redemption. Drawn to stories like The Lion King where it all works out in the end, right? And I really think that the story of redemption... We're drawn to this because... That's the actual story of the cosmos. That's God's big story. On the other side of death, there is life. And I think all the best stories, at least the best stories in my opinion, show this. Uh, Again, as a nerd, I have to mention Jared Tolkien. At least, I guess, once earlier I mentioned it again. But Tolkien came up with this word, uh, "u-catastrophe." So if a catastrophe is when everything goes bad, a u-catastrophe is the moment in a story when things look their worst... But then there's this turn, this twist, and a happy ending comes as if out of nowhere. Uh, Tolkien was a Christian, so he talks about uh, the resurrection of Jesus as the eucatastrophe in history. And every other happy ending kind of points to that that story. And we see this eucatastrophe, this happy ending idea, this hopeful idea in many places. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of Bob Dylan recently. Obviously, I'm very late in the game because he's been around since like 70 years ago. Uh, but one of his songs, The Times They Are a changin written in 1963, intentionally to create a sort of anthem for the times of change they were living in. Uh, at the end of that song, there's these lines, the order is rapidly fading and the first one now will later be last for the times they are a-changing. Quoting the words of Jesus there, that the last will be first, the times they are changing, things are getting better. And I think the best stories give us a vision for this better world. So what do these stories tell us about the world? They tell us that there are forces for good at work, even when it seems like they're not. There's forces for redemption and restoration. What do these stories tell us about others? They tell us that other people have worth and value, that people can change for the better, and that they're created in God's image. We'll put it that way. And then finally, what do they tell us about ourselves? They tell us that we have a place in the story and that we have a challenge, a call to work for good in our little corner of the world. Even if we never see the big picture changes we're hoping for, that we're still called to make a change and that change can happen. So I guess in wrapping up, um, I would just encourage each of us that when we go throughout this coming week, when we read stories, whether it's in books, watch stories, TV and movies, listen to stories and music, whatever it may be. you know, go into these stories to enjoy. You're at the end of a, d- a tired day. You want to catch the last episode of Stranger Things, which is so long. It's going to take us three days to watch it. You know, whatever you want to do, you go into those story to, to, to escape, and that's fine. But also be aware of maybe what that story is saying about what it means to be a human, what the world is, what others are, um, are meant to be. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then Dave is going to come up and lead us one more song. Heavenly Father, thank you for being the great author of the greatest story ever. And I pray that you give us eyes to see that even when this world appears to be a broken, messed up place, even when the, the scars and the, the bad guys appear to be winning and, and things don't seem to be getting better, give us hope that you are working and that redemption and restoration are coming. I pray that we would see that in the stories we read and listen to. And I pray that apart from that, that you would move us to be people who are working for change, working for good in our own life stories, and that we would join you in, in writing um, a story that we know is going to end in a positive way, in a happy ending. Thank you for all you've done for us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Koinos Podcast. If you like what you hear, like, subscribe, and share it. You can connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at KoinosCC, CC and on YouTube at Koinos Community Church. Until next time, Be well, do good, and love others.